0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. You know, as I said, I moved back east. I'm living outside Philadelphia in what's technically considered South Jersey. But I went to real South Jersey this past weekend. Now, I went to college at what was called Stockton State. Now, it's Richard Stockton University. And it's down near the Jersey Shore, which is 10 miles from Atlantic City. Well, we went down for a barbecue in that area. And I forgot how much New Jersey has an area that is just like sticks like, nothing. I couldn't believe it. We're driving down Route 30, and all we saw was Italian restaurants, liquor stores, and automotive repair places. And I'm thinking, no one would, no one ever thinks this is about New Jersey. They think it's like Newark or Elizabeth. But it's amazing, and it's, it's a nice area, but it's just, I wouldn't want to live there because you really can't do anything. Anyway... It was fun, and I'm glad to be back in Jersey. And uh, my guest today—I'm sure he's played New Jersey because he's played everywhere. Because he's been a headlining comic for years. My guest is Joey Cole. How you doing, Joey? Hey, Steve. How are you, buddy? Good, good. So, what's what what are some of the weirdest, weirdest places you've driven in New Jersey? Because I know if you're from New—I love,
1: I love New Jersey. I'm there all the time. Matter of fact, I do the four for each year and. And I was, uh, I always, uh, I'm always doing clubs in South Jersey, you know, Uncle Vinny's is there, and Stress Factory is there, and some of the greatest comedy clubs, Rascals in West Orange was one of the greatest comedy clubs ever, ever on the planet, and they had a short club down in Monmouth also, so, um, but I, do, I also do back rooms, and I, I work everywhere, uh big gigs, little gigs, Pat Cooper told me years ago, if it's a gig, take it, you know, so, I, uh, I do everything, man. I've been doing it for 35 years now.
0: So now, how did you get into it? As a kid, were you funny, or were you fascinated with comedy? I mean, you know, you grew up well, in Brooklyn, I believe. How did this whole process start?
1: Well, I was, uh, my family's from uh, Brooklyn and Queens. My, my mother was uh, was from uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn, North 6th Street between Drinks and the Roebling. My, my grandfather had a store uh, years ago, in 30s and 40s on that street. Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which... Uh, I, mean, I have no family there now but i wish i had a had, still had my my grandmother's house it's worth they're worth millions now over there and um and my father was from ridgewood mass with Ridgewood, queens and they met metropolitan avenue it was a that went through there so they met and uh in 1961 i was born i have a brother that was born in 1963. and uh that's it we, I, I started doing comedy as a, as a young young kid we uh we had family parties Whenever anybody from the city, because we were the first family to move out from the city to Long Island to the, the sticks, as you call it, um, we'd have family parties out in Long Island, and all my city relatives would come out. My uncle Ralph played guitar. My uncle told jokes. My father and my mother, my mother always sang and danced. So there was always a microphone and an amp and a, and a guitar and a piano. So that we had great family parties. Everybody would, my uh, cousin played guitar, and everybody would participate and tell jokes or sing or dance at least, you know. So I learned early on when my Uncle Ralph uh, handed me a microphone at four years old, hey, Joey, tell a joke, you know, and I I heard a joke and I told it. And I saw the response and the acceptance and the, uh, you know, the attention you get from the adults when you make them laugh. So that registered at an early age. So uh, I'm telling jokes since I'm about four years old.
0: That's crazy. You know, it's so funny. You know, it's so many people do. They get that microphone when they're little, and once they they get that, attention, they're like, wow, this yeah. is pretty cool, it's, it's like almost like a power, because then everyone treats you, I'm sure, different than any other four-year-old at the party, because you're the kid who told the funny joke, the other four-year-old was just sitting there, you know, eating you glue. Go. It's on a
1: very basic, simple level, you know, at that point, and then I even started singing and stuff, my cousin played guitar, and, and uh, up until, you know, they're all older now, my, my my parents passed away, some of my aunts and uncles have passed away, but my uncle Ralph is still around, and uh Every once in a while when we gather he, he pulls out the piano with the, oh, the guitar and he plays guitar and now three generations past him are doing the same thing now it's great
0: now you before you told the joke you got the the you know the the spark in you when did you decide that you were going to do stand up as a career and how did you start that
1: wow that's a great question i am um, well, you know, I was, uh, I went to high school and, you know, junior high in high school and I was pretty quiet in high school. And, um, you know, people say, well, you a class clown. And I say, uh, I refer, re- refer back to a, an old Billy Crystal joke where right? I wasn't a class clown. I was a class comedian. The class clown was my friend who ran across the uh, football field naked. The class comedian is the guy who talked him into doing it. Right. You know, so I, um, I was kind of quiet in high school and, uh, and my early, early days, and, uh, I, uh I went to college with my best friend, Tom Moran, we went upstate New York, and, uh and I went up there for a little while, and I came back to Long Island because it was too cold up there, and I went to a community college, I was community college, and I went to C.W. Post here in Long Island, and I got a finance and economics degree from there, with a minor in theater, it took me five years to get a four-year degree because that's how the college I was. I was thinking about being a comedian then, so I, um, I saw, uh, a show on television, a uh, documentary about the club Pips in Brooklyn. It was done by Seth Schultz. Marty Schultz owned Pips, and he had two sons, uh, Seth and Marty Jr. And they, uh, years ago in the, in the 50s and 60s, it was called Folkways Cafe, and and everybody performed there, Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers and uh, the guy who played Benson, the Guillaume sang there, and uh, Warner Klemperer, who was uh, Colonel Klink in the. Uh, Hogan's Heroes, would frequent that place. It was like it was like an original, like a folk little folk place, like a beatnik place, and it became the original comedy club in the country. It was like the first comedy club in the whole country. It was Pips. So I saw a documentary about it where you know, Rob Klein, Steve Landisberg, John Rivers, everybody performed at Seinfeld. And um, I saw a documentary on HBO about it, and I saw the documentary. I said, I think I could do this. You know, because I'm, I'm funny around my friends, and I'm, I think I could put this into a routine where I could tell it, because there's a big difference between being funny around your friends and being able to do it on stage, you know? <clears throat> so I thought I could do this. So I was working at an Italian brick factory on Long Island. At the same time, I was going to C.W. Post College. And um, I figured, let me start to audition. So I uh, went to a place called Richard F. Dixon's at a, you know, uh, an open mic night. And then I went to Side Comedy Club on Long Island owned by Richie Minnabidi, who's, uh, who's still on. He's a great comic. He opens up for Kevin James, and he's still a good friend. And I went uh, to these audition nights, and I started doing uh, audition nights. And uh, the first time I was in there, I did five minutes, and I did okay. I didn't do great. But after I came off stage, Richie Minnabidi handed me, the owner of the club, he handed me $20. And uh, I said, really? He said, yeah, come back and do it again. And I was making $65 a week, you know, really busting my hump, but it was four minutes, a dock doctor, a time bread factory, and going to college, to $65, but he had to be $20, for doing five minutes on stage. So I said, whoa, a little light went off, and I said, I could make some money doing this. I just thought about what makes me laugh, and I wrote it down, and I kept going back, and going back, and going back, and then, uh, that's how it kind of started. I mean, while I was at the time bread factory, I would do their Christmas parties, too, um, you know, I do some stand-up at the Christmas parties just making fun of, you know, the people that work there, you know, because everybody knew them. But, uh, but basically, I got my start at uh, the Eastside Comedy Club of Richie Menovini.
0: Now, what was the comedy scene like then in Long Island? I mean, I know, like, I've heard stories about the Long Island 11, which, you know, I think was late Bob Woods and Eddie Murphy and all yeah. that. But what was, yeah. it, what was the scene like? And after you did that, how did you sit there and figure, I'm going to parlay my open mics into actually working. Well, I, um, I was going to
1: Richard M. Dixon's and that closed down. That, that was just basically the East Side Comedy Club of Richie Minervini. And then, um, and also Jackie Marling had a, it was, it was an open mic kind of thing. You can go up and just tell his jokes. So, I was able to do that early on also. Um, and then Richie's brother opened the club called Chuckles and Mineola. You might hear some chihuahuas barking at the bar because I don't see what I'm running around here. But, but um, and we, uh, modeling uh, opened up uh, had a club. We did a, you know, crows, all the kind of stuff. And then, um, Minervini's brother opened up Chuckles, and before you know it, there was like eight full time comedy clubs on Long Island alone because there's four million people here, you know. So, um, I started doing, uh, you know, those clubs, and then I knew I had to go into the city. What happens is, is it, you really stay in one market for so long. I mean, once you start becoming a good comic, you gotta, you know, you gotta do the road, you know, and when you, first you, you go, it's like a, a rock in a pond, it makes ripples, you go out a little bit further from where you live and then further and further and further, you know, so I knew I had to go into the city, so getting back to that documentary about Pips, Brooklyn, that Seth Schultz did, I said, let me try to work Pips in Brooklyn, and I became the house MC uh, for about three years, it was on uh, Nab- uh, Emmons Avenue in uh, Cheapside Bay, And um, at the same time, I started calling to the improv in New York. Silver Friedman owned that place, so I figured, let me try to get into the city. So I was doing pips, I was doing the improv, and I was doing the comedy clubs on Long Island. At the same time, I was still working as a foreman on a loading dock trying to get my degree from CW Post. So then I started doing many sets everywhere. uh, If there wasn't uh, any one-nighters or stuff available on Long Island, then I would go to the city and do, you know, then I like, got um, into Catch Before You Know It and Who's On First. And there was a million little clubs in the city we'd bang around. And I was a Long Island comic, so I'd drive my car in. And um, people would use my car to just drive around the city. like you know, Ray Romano, At one point, I remember having Ray Romano, Mario Cantone, and uh, like Eddie Brill, and like Dennis Leary all in the car at the same time. I'm all driving around the city, and I'd leave a car at a club with a key with the key, and i tell other comics, just make sure it's in front of Catch by 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, <laughs> well, and that's we'd your... bang around and do
0: eight, nine, six. Now, what were you talking about back then? Because, you know, I, when I did stand-up, I mean, it was when you're, I did a lot of one-liners. When you're younger, yeah. your act, I mean, you know, your act's developed over the years. But what what kind of bits were you doing? Because you are a young age, you're still in college. You know, we, we don't yeah. really know a lot. You know, we sit there, I mean, we don't have that life right. experience.
1: That's a good question. I'm actually helping a couple of young comedians now with the same problem. They they can only talk. You can only talk about what you know, and what you've experienced. Uh, or you could, uh, at that point, you can ask questions because you're young and naive. So maybe ask questions of the audience. Say, you haven't noticed, or yeah, you, uh, you know, uh, you guys, uh, can you guys help me with this problem that I'm learning about? You know what I mean, like that. But. I talked about what I knew my mother waking me up in the morning to find out what time I had to get up you know banging into the uh, into my bed with the vacuum cleaner um, you know uh, different pets that I had uh, you know uh, you know fam- old family so I did impressions of my my grandmother I'm a fisherman so my grandmother's Italian so she'd come and eat the bait out of my out of the freezer right you know I'd have like squid to go fluke fishing and she'd stuff the squid and eat it and I, I'm my like, <laughs> grandma that's my bait you know, some basic stuff, and I was pretty clean back then, I mean, I got a little bit dirtier as I go, because I like blue blue comedy, because <clears throat> I was also influenced by listening to other comics, I love Ronnie Dangerfield, and Pryor, and Carlin, of course, but I also like the Borscht Belt guys, and I also like watching, you know, Abbott and Costello, Lou Costello is a very big influence of mine, and, uh, as well as a lot of the Borsch Belt guys, because, uh, their survivors and just the personality of comedians. Even today, when I see the new guys come up, I, the, the ones who have, have it or have something, you know, it still amazes me uh, how, where they got from God or the universe this thing that they're able to uh, turn into something that very few people have that gets under the skin to make people laugh. You know, it really is an amazing, uh, Phenomenon, you might say. Uh, I work. I, I do work. I have a role on King uh, Kevin Can Wait now, or Kevin James is show. I warm up his show, and I play Principal Larry Anderson. And I work with uh, well. Chris Roach is a Long Island comedian who I saw come up through the through the ranks. And he plays Mott on the show. And this guy is just an amazing talent and personality, and you can feel it when you're around him. I mean, he's big in size, stature too. He's like six four. You know,
0: when you're around
1: him. He really makes you feel good, and, he, and his material is great. It's like belly laughs, you know? So it's always uh, enjoyable for me to see young comedians, um, you know, talk about uh, where they're from and what they're doing now and see that evolve, you know, because that's, that's what happened to me also.
0: So your actor's evolving, and you're hitting all the... the spots in the city you're doing a lot of you're getting a lot of stage time do you feel your acts growing and then when you sit there and say i have to branch out further than new york because as you said you know you can work new york's great but you also you want to get out on the road so you can do longer sets yeah. and, and develop your act when did you because i remember i used to work the door at the comedy factory outlet in philly and i saw you there yeah and, and, yeah and that was a great club that was just one of the best clubs was that, was that clay Here? yeah it was clay and, um, yeah, 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 but I remember seeing you there, but when did you start to say, when did you sit there and say, okay, I got to get out of New York and not get out. Cause you still want to work well, out of there. Well, it, I didn't say it to myself. The
1: universe came down and said it to me. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story now. And it's, it's pretty intense. Uh, we, you remember the comedy stop at the Trop with Bob Kephart. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So that was at the, uh, the Tropkana. So it was, uh, I was doing well up here and, you know, at that point, the Eastside Comedy Club was so hot on the East Coast that comics would come from as far as the Midwest and Cleveland to work it and so would the club owners. So, um, what happened was, you know, Bob Kephart would would come to the Eastside Comedy Club and and he'd bring some Long Island comics back this way and then he'd offer some Jersey comics and Philadelphia comics up, you know, up to Long Island And, and that's how, you know, Back then, the comedy was so hot in the 80s that you could stay in a town, Boston, Philly, New York, the state of Florida, Chicago, San Francisco. You could stay in those towns and make a decent living. However, you could also cross over. There were so many clubs that you can cross over. And I had people like Lenny Clark and this guy Mark Barris and Jackie Flynn and a bunch of other comics helped me to get into Boston. And, and, um, and Philly, Big Daddy Graham, helped get me into Philly and... As well as uh, Andy Scott Patty had the Comedy Cabarets and stuff. So you would try to do as much road as you can. So when you're just doing the Eastside Comedy Club, you'd see people from, from other c- cities come in and you'd meet them and, and, and learn about them. And they'd hand you a card and say, hey, why don't you come to my club? I'll give you a paid set. And, um, you know, and then that's how you, you do that. So anyway, Bob Kephart had heard about me and I got his number and I said, can I come down and work the Comedy Stop with a Trop? And that was a big deal for me because now, Atlantic City in the eighties was still thriving. All the hotels were going big and and um you know there were bus trips down there and the Comedy Stop at the Trop was a great club and it was like my first real road gig and I was still an MC. You know, comedians start MC at ten, you know, ten, fifteen minutes and they do middle spots twenty minutes to a full, and they do two spot, forty five minutes to an hour. So I was still MCing and I was still kind of green. So what happened was I had I had done the club once and uh he put me in a condo, uh, which was right next to the club, and it was a real nice condo. Dolly Parton was upstairs from us, and Frank Sinatra was downstairs from us. And it's a really nice condo, and three comics shared a condo. It was three bedrooms, two baths, you know. And um it was a real big deal for me, because it was like my real road first road gig um at a at like a show place. You know, Atlantic City was the closest show place. It was the biggest thing. It was a very big deal, you know. So, I'd done it uh, once or twice before, and it was great. So, this time, I figured, let me bring my girlfriend, who's my wife now. And this was 1986, uh, October, the weekend of October 19th, which is my birthday. And, um, actually, my parents came to, came down to see me. And um, they came down on a Friday, and uh, they, they, uh, they saw me Friday night, and then... Um, Saturday, we woke up, we had breakfast, we walked the boardwalk, and then we had some ice cream, and I said goodbye to my parents, and they drove back to Long Island. So I went back to the room, got dressed, and went down to the showroom. And um, there was no cell phones at this point or anything like that. So uh, we did, I think, I think it was one show that night. I'm not sure if it was one show or two, but I, I was only there for one, because what happened was I get on stage, and I do my five minutes at the MC, I bring up a the middle act who was a ventriloquist with a duck. I forget his name. I I can't forget the guy's name, but I bring him up. And while he's on stage, uh, we get a call backstage at comedy stop the trial that my parents had been in a terrible car accident and there's a good chance one of them died. So are you there? Yeah. So what happened is, uh, they, I went kind of went into a quick shock. And at the same time, the middle act says, that's my time, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back, Joey Cola. So my gut reaction was just to hear my name and walk back on stage with this in my mind. So I walked back on stage, and I did about two minutes of comedy, totally automatic pilot, um, with the knowledge that my parents were sitting right in front of me, and that seat right in front of me, the night before. Right. And now they've been in a terrible car accident. So I do about a minute or two, and then I bring up Adam Leslie, who was the headliner, and I come off the stage, and Bob Kephart said, listen, we'll close out the show, you go home. So my girlfriend, who's my wife now, we ran back to the condo, we packed up our luggage and everything, and jumped in the car and took off, because my my future mother-in-law, which was my, my girlfriend's mother, called backstage and told us what happened, and she had talked to my brother, And I had ruled, you know, uh, my brother said, uh, strict rules, don't go to the hospital first. It was on Long Island on 110, the hospital's gone now, but he said, come home, don't go to the hospital, but, you know, I can't listen to that. So I went right to the hospital And there. My father was on the third floor in ICU, Uh, but he was, he was conscious, but my mother was in, you know, real intensive care. She was in a coma. And she was really, really messed up. Tubes and, you know, machine keeping her heart going and stuff. And so I, I uh, had a major breakdown. I was freaking out the whole way back from Atlantic City to Long Island. It was crying and doing 150 miles an hour. And, you know, so, and my mother and my father were my biggest fans. Like, you hear a lot from comedians like, oh, my, my parents did this and I was abused and I didn't have this and didn't have that. I mean, we didn't grow up rich, but, they gave us everything they could, and they. I had I had great support from my parents. There was no animosity, you know. There was no. Um, there was nothing bad in my in my uh, past, you know. My right. father drank a little bit, smoked, but there was no abuse of any sort. So um, I don't rely on that excuse Bob. as a as a comedian to give a, or give a reason to why I'm a comedian because they were great, and I was very close, especially to my mother. Anyway, so she's in a coma. I see her there, and then, uh, then I drove home 15 minutes from there. And at that point, my brother I had I already gathered all my relatives from the, from New York City and from Long Island at the house, and all my friends at the red house. There was about 50, 80 people at the house, my parents' house, which is where I, my brother and I was still living at the time. And uh, so... We uh, kind of held vigil there, you know, and uh, that was my birthday. October nineteenth was that day, and then uh, the twentieth was the Sunday, I believe. And then she died at one o'clock in the morning, and uh, there was nothing uh, anybody could do. She was her head hit the windshield. My father had an epileptic uh, attack. He hit a, he hit a tree on the side of the road. So um, he, my brother, and I and our relatives went to burying my mother. While my father was still in the hospital, because we couldn't tell him, because he would have he would have went into a cardiac arrest. So we buried my mother, and we told him about three or four weeks later, and we brought him home and took care of him and nursed him back to health. And then, um, and then a year later, he was in another car crash. Uh, same thing happened. Uh, he had an epileptic seizure, and this time he was in the hospital again. He had another seizure, and in, in the hospital and. One of the nurses who came to help him uh, wound up being his wife uh, about three years after that. So we'd like to think that she was sent by my mother. But um, as far as it has to do with stand up, I didn't get on stage for about three months after that, and I was and I was really going strong, you know. So two or three months after that happens to my mom, you know, I was in bad shape. Uh, you know, people would say. You know, I said, well, I can't sleep, so bring me a bottle of NyQuil. So I drank a bunch of NyQuil, because uh, I was so depressed and, uh, um, you know, in such a depression mm. over my mother dying that I didn't know whether I was going to commit suicide or just what I was going to do, something, but I knew that drinking NyQuil put me to sleep, so I did that for a little while, and then I, I, I stopped doing that. My girlfriend called me and said, get the NyQuil and just let's start to come back here now. And I couldn't do it, couldn't do it. Then my friend, Steve O, whose name, uh, his, his name is Steve Winehouse, now his name is Steve Oakes. O-C-H-S. His, his name is Steve O at the time, and he was one of my best friends. And when this all happened to my mom, I had to give up a Star Search audition. The man uh, posted Star Search. I had to give it up because I couldn't do it, but <clears throat> he, took, uh, he took my audition, and he wound up getting the show. And he knew what bed of sheep I was in. So, uh, this was a month or two after everything happened, maybe even three. So he, he called me and says, you're coming to LA with me. You're going to coach me on Star Search. And I said, dude, up here, I'm a mess. He says, no, York, I'm paying for you. Stay in the hotel with me. I'll pay for your flight. You're coming out and coaching me on Star Search. So I went out with him. And, uh, he wound up beating Jackie Martley on the show. She beat Martin Lawrence on the show. And, uh, he went into the semifinals and then he lost. But um, at that point, so many comics, Rosie O'Donnell, John Ballrooney, Rich Jenny, you know, Minivini, they were all rallied around me because they hadn't seen me in a while and they knew what happened with my mom and everybody was kind of worried about me uh, and what I would do and stuff. So after Steve lost on Stone Search, we went, we stayed in LA for a little while and we, we uh, stayed at uh, John Ballrooney and Rich Jenny had an apartment at Sunset Boulevard. So we stayed with them. And Rich Jenny was a bit stalled at this point. He's doing The Tonight Show, and he's doing Montreal, and he's got a special coming up. And uh, John Maruti was hosting to Live on Fox. So these guys are doing pretty well. So we just stayed with them for a little while. And one night, we had a bit down in the San Bernardino Valley. It was a uh, quality in. It was, uh, it was mostly uh, an African-American audience. And they brought me with them. And I haven't been on stage now in about three months, and all I, you know, all I see is my mother with these tubes coming out of her head and her heart. And, you know, I can't, I'm in no mood to do stand up, but I, you know, I still got a hot five, ten minutes, I guess, fifteen. But I, I really thought I was leaving the business, so Steve O was emceeing, and, uh, Haruni was going up, and Jenny was going up, and in the middle of this quality in, little do I know, they, Steve-O says, hey, Joey, uh, you know, let's get this, my friend of mine is here, uh, he wants to do five minutes, Joey Cola, so he, he introduces me, and I was like, you know, really scared of right. my mind, and uh, I walked on stage to this predominantly black audience, in the middle of nowhere, and I'm on the opposite end of the country, and I still got this trauma from my mother dying, and this car accident, death all around, and, and I went, into automatic pilot I did about three or four minutes maybe five and I didn't do well I just did okay to the point where I got a few laughs and I got a round of applause and I I realized that these people don't know what happened to me and they don't have to know when you're a performer you go up and it's show it's show business it's show and, and business so I just did my thing in automatic pilot I come off stage my friends are crying and they're like, see, you were going to commit suicide, you were going to hurt yourself, but now those people don't know you killed, you did great. I said, well, I didn't kill, but I think I got life here. So I called Richie Minovini in the middle of the night, and I said, dude, I'm going to stay in it. So he told me at that point, he goes, and the Eastside Comedy Club was thriving at that point, so he said, I don't care if Jackie Mason is on stage in the middle of his set on a Saturday night, I'll pull him off to put you on. Wow. That's how much Richie Minafini believed in me. And then I called my girlfriend and I said everything's going to be okay. And then we stayed in L.A. for you know a few more uh, days. And then we flew back. And I started doing Eastside so chuckles so or went to you know the to the city a little bit. And then I went right from an MC to a headliner in a matter of four about four or five months because. I got this strength that I had no fear anymore. Like my mother, who was the closest thing to me, is gone. And my and my greatest fear came true. Like my, you know, when you're that age, you know, when you're 24, 25, right. and you got to, you know, your parents are alive and things are going well. Um, I don't know if it's Italian guilt or whatever it is, or, but you have a big fear of your parents being gone. So my greatest fear came true. So now I'm bulletproof. Now there's nothing you can do to me, you know? And I took that on stage and I became an animal. I just became strong. I was writing like crazy, uh, you know, because I thought this is what my mama want me to do. And I only middled for a few months before I, I, I took this high energy act and, and these bits that I came up with. And, and then uh, and at that point, Bob Nelson was a very big name on Long Island and around the country, he took me under his wing, as well as Rich Jenny did, to open up for them at different clubs around the tri-state area, and I met Jeff Sussman, who was uh, <clears throat> Bob Nelson's management, he decided to manage me, and at that point, I started doing audition sets for Caroline's Comedy Hour, and uh, Evening at the Improv, and uh, Comedy on the Road on A&E, and uh, Showtime Comedy Club Network, and HBO Young Comedian Stars, and uh the million, it was a million little comedy cable shows and I and I did them all. What was it? And I became was, really, really strong and it started headlining clubs all over the country because you know, we got to network and had a manager at this point and uh and then I uh did eventually I did Letterman in ninety six. I just did uh Jimmy Fallon's show in two thousand ten and and I uh I just kept on going, you know, and here I am, fifty six years old doing comedy thirty five years. Well, I've been up TV shows for almost 24 years, and uh, same same wife, same uh, I got my two kids, I got the house, and uh, I'd
0: like to say happily ever after. What you know? was, <laughs> What was the Letterman experience like? Was it a long process for you to get the old show on, on that, or I mean, how did that come about?
1: Yeah, it. Uh, well, we auditioned for Zoe Friedman, but Bud Friedman's daughter was the my producer. Two addition and I and I got the show, but uh, I got bumped eight times. And they watched at that point. They watched every syllable you said. You know, say this, don't say that. Change it, change it, change it. And mean, the experience me was not really a good one, and I'll tell you why. Um, Letterman was the crown jewel of stand of you know of shows to get if you were a stand up comic. I mean, Johnny Carson, uh, you know, had was was it? But then once he gave it to Leto, uh, Leno. Leno was kinda of like, all right, it's Leno, you know what I mean? They're not really having stand ups on Leno, but them was still the calling jewel, and had respected comics on there. So when I when I got that, um it was uh it was it was a feel good thing, but it took eight I got bumped eight times. One time I got bumped from Moesha. So I was like, <laughs> oh my god, like I g I'm getting bumped for, for people that but anyway, don't like, was like, Don't they know what I got to offer you? So, you know, as a comic, you you got you have that kind of like, why 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 am I getting bumped so much? So, but anyway, I was grateful for it anyway, so to do it. So I put a set together, and at that point I was closing with a bit where I went to, uh, I went to Disney World with my wife and kids. And um, and we had got to go to the character breakfast. to get to have breakfast with Winnie the Pooh and Tigger and Pinocchio. So we're having breakfast, and we go to leave, and my daughter goes to hug Tigger, and uh, he jumped up and he knocked her over, and she fell, and she banged her head on his big clay uh, planter, and she uh, she fell down, and she was crying. My wife was crying. There are paramedics there, and I'm thinking to myself, "Yes, Mickey Mouse is buying Daddy Alexis." Right. I'm like, "Stay down, stay down. Can you bleed for Daddy?" And that was the that was my closing bit. And at that point, I had done it. Uh, in the clubs, and I knew it was a killer bit, and and Letterman loved the bit, so that's uh, you know, so he had told us that Letterman loves that bit. I mean, that was just the closing bit, but you know, I had I had five minutes ahead of that, but that was the closing bit. So what happened that night was, and it was uh, I think it was June thirteenth. It was my brother's birthday, nineteen ninety six. Uh, early in that earlier in that show, in the monologue, and Letterman knew that I was closing with a Disney bit. Right. In his monologue, the beginning of the show, he does a bit similar to what I'm closing with. So I'm listening to his monologue (laughs) saying to myself, holy shit, this this guy knows I'm doing this bit. And he's he likes it because they know they they knew the bit was coming. They had seen it. They they were ready for it eight times and they had seen it. Um, and I was told that he was a fan of the, of the bit. So he does not the exact same bit, but something similar to it, enough where when I closed with it, the audience, I got like a semi-groan at the end of my set, and I had to actually look over, I actually, if you watch the set, I look over the letterman, you know, to kind of refer to what he did. Because when a comic says something that you're going to say on stage, in other, words, in other words, if I'm going to go up and I'm going to do bits about butterflies, if the guy before me talked about butterflies, I'll say, yeah, Johnny was just talking about butterflies. But my take on butterflies is this. You know what I mean? You refer to it so that you can get away with it. Right. So so I kind of looked over to him to, to, to say, oh, like, he was my Disney bit too. But it got like an audible kind of a groan. And uh, and then, then the other thing that was kind of a little annoying was when they told me not to, when I shook his hand, don't let him shake your hand, you don't shake his hand because he has a neck problem, so I don't want to mess up his neck, so, you know, it's let him, in. you're walking on eggshells, you don't know if he's going to like you, not like you, he's sarcastic, I don't know, but the thing that threw me off was, why does he, why did he have to talk about Disney, earlier on in the monologue when they knew that my closing bit was a Disney thing. You know what I mean? Right. So it kind of affected my set. Um, well, I'm sure and you're... then I thought to myself, right, I mean, it was no big deal. I still did and I still did okay. But I, I never went back. And I didn't go back not because I didn't want to go back. Um, I went back because I talked to Jeff Ross. And he had he had just did in. I think just before me or after me. And I saw him at a club. And I said to him, hey man, when are you doing Letterman again? And he goes, why? And I said, why? Because look at Jake Johansson, look at all these guys that are doing Letterman a million times. She goes, a million times you shouldn't you? Because I did Because what am I, why would I do it again? And I was like, he really uh, made an impression on me when he said that. Like he said, there's other things to do. I mean, if, like, if it comes along, I'll do it, but there's other things to do right now, so I thought the same thing. Of, I did, let him in already. That's on the resume. It's under my belt. Now let's see what else is out there to do. Let's go out, and make some money in these clubs, and do some road.
0: So, uh, so that's that. So now, did you, did you did you do did you do Leno?
1: I did Leno from Montreal with uh, Louis Ramey and the girl who's on. The girl who's on the show with, uh, um, not Bill Hader, the other guy who's got the show where he's the last man on the earth, or yeah. something like that, okay. on Cri- Fox, there's a, there's a girl with these short brown hair and big eyes, and she's a comedian. Yeah, Kristen she was pu- Kristen Shaw. She was with a guy who played a guitar, another comedian at the time. They were a, they were a duet. And um, they were a comedy team. So they were, it was them, it was uh, Louis Ramey and me, Doing comedy in people's houses during the uh, just for last festival of Montreal, because was Just Paul So um, we, so it was kind of on Letterman from Montreal. I mean, on Leno from Montreal. So it was. Uh, I did stand up in somebody's living. I did stand up routine in somebody's living room, and uh, it was kind of cool. So that's that's the extent that I did Leno, you know.
0: Now you're doing stand up. You're performing all around. You know. You know. Are you going overseas at all, or do you stay strictly in the U.S.?
1: Well, uh, no, no, no. We, uh, we, I went to, I went to England. I did some shows in England or well, Canada. You know, a bunch of clubs in Canada. But uh, I did a show in England. It was a, call, a show called on Live at the Paramount, and it was like Saturday Night Live. And uh, it was me, this girl uh, Pam Matheson, who's passed away, and uh, Kid Creole and the Coconuts, and Bonnie Wait. Okay, so um, it was so I got to do some sets over at the uh, the the, uh, the uh, comedy store over in Leicester Square in in, uh, in England and London, and uh, and then I did the show, and I only, I was only doing like a stand up spot on it, like seven eight minutes, you know. But to be backstage with Kit Creel and the Coconuts and uh, and Bonnie Raid especially because at that point Bonnie Raid was so huge in the states, you know, she uh, she was they just come out, she won many Grammy awards. So I got to go over there and I got to hang with her and I had dinner with her and stuff. And so I did that TV show there and I just did the, um I get to say I did the Comedy Store in Leicester Square a few times. But uh, after that, I came back. I really, was there was no other reason to really perform there because shortly after that, back in like 93, I wound up, uh, I wound up starting to do warm up. I did Jon Stewart's original show, which is where Wendy Williams shoots now. It's upstairs from Rachel Ray, which is where I work now and um i, I won the his show and then from there i went to the rosie o'donnell show actually rosie called me the night i did letterman as i was leaving the studio Jeff the phone rung and they had the big cell phone the TV, the TV box you know and um it was rosie and then daniel kellison who was my original producer on letterman and then he got uh executive producer title at rosie and then he was handing me over to, <coughs> over to Zoe it was friedman and she took it from there And they called me to warm up the Rosie O'Donnell show, and I warmed up Rosie for six years, I warmed up Martha for seven years, and now I'm with Rachel Ray for six years. And in between, I did America's Got Talent at Radio City, I did uh, The Marriage Ref with Seinfeld and Tom Papa, I did uh, Mm -hmm. Alien Jack, uh, Living Up with Alien Jack on CBS, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire for Four Years. uh, a bunch of other
0: shows in between, you know. Now, how how do you do warm up? Like, what what is it that you do that you bring to the audience? I, I've been, you know, a friend of mine opened uh, was doing um, uh, Sullivan and Son, and now he does. He's a new guy on Conan, and and then, but he's very different. Like when Jimmy Pardo did Conan, Jimmy was very different than Gary Cannon. You know, there's different styles. Yeah. When you do warm yeah. up, what is you? How do you approach it? And how do you sit there being a comic and being, you know having that instinct that, you know, you have high energy, you want to kill, but I'm sure you can't sit there, you know, that's what you do when you get on stage, you want to kill, but I'm sure you want to warm yeah. them up, but you can't overlap in the beginning. I mean, how long did it start you to start to get into a groove and actually learn your craft? I mean, when you first went on to do warm up, did you really have any idea what you were doing? No, no,
1: not at all, but it was John Stewart's show and being with a fellow comic and a friend you just do what you do. So we would. He would guide me and say, "I want this, some kind of energy. I want that kind of energy." And he surrounded himself with great people. Ed Comics, Howard Fellow with on the show. So I kind of led And uh, his manager Barry Segunda, talked me through it as well as my manager too. So um, they kind of talked me through doing the warm up and what they wanted. So I, I kind of cut my teeth at the Jon Stewart show. He had his own. It wasn't the, um, the tough crowd. I mean, not the tough crowd. The uh, what was the show we had on uh, Comedy show. Central? Uh, what is it? The Daily Show. The Daily Show, yeah. It wasn't the Daily Show. It was a show he had on, on uh, Channel Nine W-O-R-M- beforehand, and uh, he just told me what they wanted me to do, and I kind of did it. And I learned as I went along because you learn the, you learn from the stage managers, you learn from the producers, you learn you know what they want, what they don't want. So uh, I learned kind of there, and then uh, and then he left that show to move on to the little things. And then when I was doing Letterman, the Rosie people called me, and that's when I really learned warm up. Uh, the stage manager named Rose Riggins really taught me a, a lot about what, what to do and what not to do. And Rosie, I knew from the club, so she told me how she wants to show one. Because, you know, I said to her, you know, what kind of a show are you going to have? Are you going to have a Sally, Jesse, Raphael, or, or Geraldo Rivera, where people are throwing chairs at each other? Or are you going to have, she says, I wanna, I'm going to have a combination of Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas. It's going to be fun. We're going to do Broadway. It's going to be big, and I want you to keep the energy up like you would at a comedy club. See, when you're doing warm up, Steve, it's it's like you know you're welcoming those people into someone else's house. You're the butler. You're the valet. You're the rodeo clown. It's not my house, so you represent the company and the, the person, that the host. You know what I mean? So you protect the host at all costs, and and you um, it's their show. When I do stand up, it's my show. I say what I want, do what I want. That's me. But when you're welcoming somebody into people into somebody else's house, you got to be on your best behavior. and You know, you're squeaky clean and stuff like that. Which, you know, Pardo and Gary Cannon, I, I know both those guys. And uh, Roger Lundblade is out in L.A. And um, they, When you do sitcoms, it's a little bit different. Like when I warm up, Kevin can wait it's four hours, five hours. And you have a DJ and you're throwing candy and pizza and stuff like that. It's a little bit more fun, but it's all about the script. You know, when you're doing a daytime show or... A, or a late night talk show, it goes segment to segment, and different things happening in every segment. It's not, not necessarily connected, so you just got to keep a certain level of energy up. Like when I filled in for Eddie Brill over at Letterman when I did the warm up at Letterman. This was uh, years after I did stand up on the show. Letterman just wanted it to be natural, as natural as possible, you know. So, and that's typical of a late night show. However, a daytime show, uh, you know, like uh, The Chew, or R. C. Smith is over at The Chew, or uh, Richie Byrne is over at Doctor Oz. Uh, you got to keep that energy up because they're mainly uh, housewives that are kind of uh, in the audience that are kind of they're more listening and they're it's it's daytime so they're not apt to to have a uh, a festival spirit uh, you know a spirit in the audience. They're not, it's not like woo. It's kind of like depending on what the subject matter is, they're listening more. You know whether it's a makeover or a, a medical segment or something like that. So you got to kind of keep them up in between those things, you know, and with Rachel, it's cooking. So that actually helps because she's a great cook and the whole place. Smells great. We get, a lot of us get to eat it. Sometimes we feed the audience, and have good giveaways and stuff like that. Cause the perfect, a perfect day for me is, uh, you know, a packed audience, which I always have because I have the greatest audience coordinator. His name is Joe Mizaki. Um, he always packs the place, you know, get, plus, you know, Rachel has a big waiting list, 250,000 person waiting list. so the place is always packed, it only holds 140, and uh, we do eight shows a week there, and then um, and then we always, you know, have a good giveaway and good guests, so that's the perfect storm for me, you know, now you said, a good way.
0: you said eight shows. Do you tape two a day, or how does the taping come down?
1: Well, we do three on, usually we do three on Tuesday, two on Wednesday, and three on Thursday. We start, I get up at 5.30 in the morning. I come home at 9 o'clock at night, we're only like a few minutes in between to have lunch because there's three audiences. So, it's pretty grueling, but you know, uh, it's what, it's, if you want to do warm up the way I do it, that, uh, you've got to be on your feet all day. I, I trained about, uh, about six people here on the East Coast. I'm known as like the granddaddy of warm up on the East Coast because, uh, I have a certain way to do it. Like when you look at the rundowns, you get your notes, you transpose it to another page to where you can understand it better. You have meetings, their own separate meetings with stage managers and producers to see what what they need in each in each segment. You know how the the audience should react. You know because I have signals. I have loud applause, medium applause, standing ovation, but I also got like "Mm, ah ooh (laughs) oh. You know like all I could I could really. Uh, really make the audience react in just about any way that we need them to And sometimes you know, they're paying, you know it's, they're paying attention to a monitor or they're paying attention to what's going on so they don't know to react So the one thing I tell them is that we're making television we're not watching television you know and, and they're part of the process of making the television for the whole audience,
0: to see how this process works, you know? Now, have you ever had a crowd that you just went in and said, holy crap, this crowd's just awful? And then did you, did you end up getting <sighs> him, Or have you ever just had a day where you're like, man, I just can't get this crowd excited? Does that ever happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: A lot of times it happens when they don't get anything. Because Rosie started the whole giving away, you know, cakes up to this entity chair with, with, with milk and giving away stuff. Even Oprah was not giving anything to the audience. Check out your seat, she got a computer or whatever. We used to shoot cruise balls and, and stuff like that. So, since Rosie uh, started giving stuff away, then Oprah did it, and then every other show, every show you see when they say, you guys are little getting this, you know, Ellen, all of them. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of producers now that worked on Rosie that are on Ellen and The Talk and all these other shows. Rosie producers any producer that came from Rosie are the best producers in television now. Shane Farley is now going to be the new executive producer of the new uh, Steve Harvey show, and just you know, it was like the creme de la creme, the uh, the, the uh, Navy Seals, you might say, of producers came from that Rosie O'Donnell show because it was so groundbreaking in many ways. Rosie uh, d- d- developed a robo that came from the, the ceiling that went on a railroad track that uh, shot Broadway shows stuff like that so getting back to your your question about giving stuff away when when the audience shows up and we well, say they're watching on tv and, and they and they say oh you guys are getting a set of pots and pans or you guys are getting a blender when an audience we don't give stuff away every day so when the audience shows up and they get nothing that kind of puts a sour taste in their mouth you know they're like well we, we just watched yesterday and uh you know, and, and you gave away a blender, a, a Vitamixer, and, and Ellen just gave away, a, you know, a trip to Mexico, and, and we're showing up, we're getting nothing, you know, right. so they actually <laughs> expect something now, and when they don't get something, they get mad at me, so what happens is, I ask the show for some giveaways, some Rachel books, I mean, not for the whole audience, I'm just a warm-up guy, I get like four or five items a show, and I say I'm looking for the people with the biggest energy and the people that are having the best time, you know, so uh, I'll give away some, you know, some books and leftover giveaways that gave, they give me. But um, the only reason why I would sense that they would they wouldn't be in a good mood, you know, because I, I bring my stand up. I do tons of stand up to them and stuff, and and uh, I have fun. we do dance contests and things like that. It only takes an hour and a half to do a, a racial show. That's why we do three a day. But um, you know, when they don't get something, they feel like they've been slighted. You know, where's my book? Where's my blender? They're on the far right. east coast, so <laughs> where's my blood? You know,
0: it's funny that you know
1: and that's the only reason why they would get angry. Other than that, I try to keep them in a good mood because I want people to feel good. I it might be their first and only time coming to a TV show, so I really want them to leave having the best experience. You know, like Maya Angelou said, she said it's not how what you say to people is how you make them feel. So I kind of try to make them feel welcome when they come in and, uh, and goodbye and hope to see you again. And hope you had a great
0: time, you know? Well, it's funny, I think, you know, with watching the show Crashing when they had Pete Holmes doing the warm up on Rachel's show. Yeah. You must have been like. That
1: was me. They were were being me, exactly. Because that's that's exactly where I stand every day. (laughs) So, no, because he he, did a good job, too, because a lot of times you feel like that. Who cares about what your birthday is, lady, you know? And you want to say stuff like that, but you can't do it. But when they came, I knew they were coming in and I kind of reached out to Judd Apatow. He didn't get back to me, but I would have liked to have been around there when that happened, but that was so surreal to watch because they were being me,
0: you know? <laughs> so now, now the King of Queens, how, how did that come up? And that, was that one of you, I mean, not the King of Queens, uh, Kevin and, Kevin, Kevin can, can wait. wait. Now, I, 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 I did a,
1: a role on King of Queens also. I did a little walk-on role on King of Queens years ago. because I happened to be out in LA doing some voiceovers I was in one Cell phones were still the flip phones. They started doing uh, voiceovers for people that would use their voice to answer your, your answering machine. So I was out there doing that. It was me, uh, that guy Ratzenberger from Cheers, Sammy Hagar, and William Shatton were all in the same room, uh, waiting to go in to record. You know, uh, you know, answer your phone, dummy, or you know, whatever it is, you know. And while I was out there, you know, I've been friends with Kevin for years. We started out in comedy clubs on Long Island together and hit, uh, Ray Romano and his brother Gary Valentine. So, while I was out there, I, Sussman, Jeff Sussman uh, went from managing Bob Nelson to managing Kevin James and managing B. So, I was out there. Season one, not you come to the set. So, I went to the set As soon as I went to the set, Kevin said, get him some uh, IPS clothes. I want to put him in the show. So, I had one line in the beginning of uh, Driving Rain is the name of the episode and then I was... Uh, but he was, uh, he was in a uh, competition with his cousin, who was his brother, actually. And I also held a clipboard during a, um, like a, a race that they did. So I was on that, and I knew Kevin for a while. And then uh, I knew when Kevin came back, he was coming back here to move. I didn't know he was going to have a TV show. So they called me and said, you want to warm up the show? I said, yeah, that'd be great. When is it? Friday nights. I am busy with Rachel Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but I could do Friday nights. So we're on the show Friday nights and, uh, Kevin and I kind of, you know, we kept with our relationship. He says, man, I got to get you in this show. So, uh, I play, I play Larry Anderson. He's the uh, vice principal who's his wife's boss cause his wife is a school nurse at the, uh, at the middle school. So, um, what happened was, uh, I, I, I was in, they were invited to a barbecue at my house and I'm the corn eating guy. So, uh, I ate corn in the episode, uh, it was called uh, kevin's good story uh shot that in november and then um and then recently on the finale episode i, I, re, I reprised the role as uh, the principal again and i was eating donuts this time because they they look they, they think it's really funny when i eat
0: that's on a, camera well what is that? that's funny i love to eat we we watch the so, show me and my girlfriend watch the show uh-huh. and uh and yeah, I said I told her today. I said, yeah, the, you know, that's the guy who ate the corn and ate the thing. And it's like that's just funny. So I mean, would you, you'll probably be on next year because you had that weird thing at the end where you know we don't know what's going on. You, we, you never got to tell her what you were going to tell her, and so we don't know what's going to happen. But if you come back again, do you think they'll make you eat again?
1: Um, I almost can, I can almost guarantee you that I'm going to be eating again. And, um, I don't, I don't know where the writers are at this point. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that she, uh, gets her job back and she wants her job back, so they're gonna come to me for it. But you don't, you never know how it's gonna go. The one thing I learned about working on a sitcom is that when the writers get in the room, you don't know what, what they're gonna do, you know, if the story can go anyway and they can change it last minute. You know, it's really cool to be around to, you know, cause you what, know, real Rock Rubin is, is one of the writers, and uh, Pete Corielli is a writer there, and uh, Michael Loftus. He's got comedians writing. you so came up with an idea on the spot. They could kind of change things last minute, so you never know how it's going to work out. But I hope uh, I hope they brings you back a few
0: times, you know. Now you're still doing stand up all the time. Do You still have the love for it.
1: Yeah, tonight tonight I'm doing Parks Casino actually. I don't know when this is going to air, but tonight I'm at Parks Casino in Pennsylvania. Bristol. it Bristol,
0: Bed Salem? something like that? Yeah, I, I played that. I played but, that a few years ago. When I, I would, when I would come yeah, back yeah. before so. I moved back, when I would come back to see my girlfriend, I would do gigs. And, yeah. and parks is different because you walk in and it's like, like it's like you walk through the casino. And it's just there. It's very odd. It's, but it's yeah. a, it's a fun place. Yeah. So now, what do yeah, I'm doing that now? Now, what do you talk about now in your act? You, just evolved as, you know, as Do you talk about getting older or just you know, the whole business? Yeah, I, I talk about. I just talk about my life. Uh, my the
1: fact that I'm fat. I mean, how, I mean, how dirty can I be on this on your show here?
0: You can say whatever you want. I could.
1: Yeah. All right, so I'll do my first five minutes. So I come out and I go, look how fat I am. I'm, I'm, I'm like tonight I wear a sweater vest. I go, lady, you're going to get this button in your eye. I say, um, and the, f- the fatter I get, the smaller my penis gets. I say, um, you know, I'm hung like an elevator button. That's how small I am. When I, when I pee, it makes a high-pitched whistling sound. It's a sh- <laughs> my wife thinks I'm making tea when I pee. That's how small I am. Yet I got skin tags. I got a skin tag so big, I got to claim it as a dependent. Why skin tags? Why Why couldn't it just be a new penis every month? Wouldn't that be right. great? You walk in the mall, your old penis falls off, you pick it up, you make a necklace, Alex and I need to do a bracelet with your old penises. And then I just go on from there, me being fat, and then I talk about my family, and I talk about the weather, and I'll talk about anything, East Coast, West Coast. I don't get political at all. And, um, cause I don't care that's my job. I mean, you know, I, I, I worked with Carlin a lot, and I, we became friends, and I not say, I can't say I worked with him. I said, I, I could say we talked a lot. And, um, he was as political as they come, you know, and, um, I just realized that, I'm not that guy, you know? So I'll do my fart jokes and my my family jokes and my penis jokes. And it gets laughs because I'm making fun of myself, you know, like, like Luke Costello used to do, you know? And um, that's what I'll talk about, you know? I'll talk about the fact that, you know, my, my wife and kids want a dog. My daughter, can we get a dog, Daddy? I want to get a dog. They got a dog. Why can't we get a dog? I want to get a dog. So I got him a dog just enough to hit a long accent saying, Dog, a dog. My wife's voice a little bit higher. I'm a big dog, too. Not am these little dogs that shits double-A batteries. No, my dog shits five cigars come out of his ass every time he shits. You know what my dog does? My dog shits while you're cleaning up his other shit. Is that the biggest fuck you anybody can give you in life? Thanks for cleaning my shit, but now here's some more shit. I'm going to put one here, another one here, and then when I'm done, I'm going to kick it up the air for you, for you. on my back feet, there's some shit ready. Right he shot the shit into my pool cover. You go in my backyard right now, there's a big booyah face. Of like duck, dog shit, duck feathers, and algae. I hate the dog, but I gotta clean up the shit because my wife's got shit radar. They shit in the yard, you asshole. They shit in the yard. So, you know, I, I go, look at you. You, you, you're in a vagina, you get whatever you want. I say, look at you ladies sitting in front watching a comedy show. You think I'd be watching a comedy show if I had do a vagina? No. I'd be out on Main Street asking people for jewelry and cars. I'd be using my vagina for good, not evil. But look at you wasting your vagina time on a comedy show. So I've got to clean this shit. And, uh, and it doesn't even matter. There's three feet of snow covering this shit, but it's out there. How do you live with yourself knowing there's shit in the yard? You know how I live with myself? I go up in the 70s. Nobody cleaned up dog shit in the 70s. If you saw dog shit in the 70s, what'd you do? Thanks for the shit. Thanks, thanks a lot. You walked around the shit. That's what happened. We <laughs> left it there. We left it there so long it turned white. Remember white shit? You don't see white shit anymore. It got white. They just turned to powder. It looked like little piles of cocaine next to the sidewalk. But nobody cleaned it.
0: <laughs> and I go on from there a million miles an hour. See, that's good. I do that for about an hour. So yeah, I must. but does your voice ever get tired, man?
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, I went to the doctor yesterday. For some reason, I got, uh, it hasn't, it hasn't in 35 years, but for some reason, I have allergies now. Oh, it's crazy. uh, I've I've, I've never had allergies. so Now I'm addicted to this Claritin. I got to take Claritin every day. I got stuff going on in my ears, my nose, and my throat.
0: It's awful. I, I, <laughs> they're, blaming,
1: they're blaming it on this uh, tree pollen, which I don't think it is. It needs
0: something more, but we'll see. I think it's tree pollen anyway, man. Hey, I want to thank you for coming on. It's great, great talking to you. That's it. I think we will go for two more hours. Ah, no, you get, <laughs> you, you get an hour. Hey, so so your website is joeycola.com. It's it's a, it's a good website. Yeah. Check it out. I like it. Now, do you do you go on the Twitter or no?
1: Yeah, I'm uh, at the Joey Cola. At the Joey Twitter. Cola and uh, people that's at the Joey Cole launch more mostly Facebook though I got my fan page on Facebook and it's just Joey Cola Facebook. That's what I'm on
0: every day. And it's K, people. It's K O L A, not C O L A. Yeah, K
1: O L A. People always call,
0: hey, Joey C, how you doing? Who the hell are you talking to? Me. <laughs> it's Joey K O L A. You know, K O L A. Well, I want to thank you, people. So follow him at the Joey Cola. Go to his website, joeycola.com. And right there, when you go to his website, it says booking. So people book him. You want to book him? He'll do private events. He'll do any, He'll do. Yeah. He'll do a lot of
1: shows. Thank you, man. I, I do a lot of shows, and I do. And i since 2018. I only got a few more spots left in 17. So, uh, if, you to, if you want to, do some stand up at your event, or you got a club or whatever. Get
0: in touch with me as soon as possible. So, Please. Book him. Also, people, follow me on uh, Twitter. I'm at CooperTalk. That's at CooperTalk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. There's over 600 episodes. You can email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. Follow me on Instagram, coopertalk1. I put pictures up of uh, my food because, you know, I wrote that uh, cookbook when I had that heart problem. So you can can buy my cookbook at stopthesalt.com. Or you can go to Amazon and just look up "Stop the Salt. Stop the the Salt by Steve Cooper. But if you buy it from my website, I make more money and I'll sign it for you. And, you know, you want me to make more money, right? So do that, people. So remember, check out The Joey Cola on Twitter, joeycola.com, coopertalk.net. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.